Hello and welcome to Delicious History on Vacation. This week we are in beautiful Montreux, Switzerland. How did a company go from providing food to the world end up killing countless babies? Find out more in this episode of Delicious History. This week's episode is brought to you by Purpose Design. Purpose Design offers educational and professional development services, having experts available to develop curricula or developers to move curricula online. Their media production staff can create proprietary videos for any course or training. For more information, you can visit PurposeLearningDesign.com. Like I said in the introduction, this week we're in the city of Montreux, Switzerland. Montreux, Montreux, something like that. This is a beautiful little town along the shore of Lake Geneva, about an hour and a half east of the city of Geneva itself. So if you're not here to ski, though, there really isn't much to do. And obviously we're not here during the skiing season, so maybe you're wondering, well, why exactly are we here? Well, the truth is that we're here because of a train. Uh, my wife really wanted to go on this train known as the Golden Pass Express. It's this, it's this really gorgeous train that goes between the towns of Montreux and Zweisman here in Switzerland. And apparently it was built all the way back in the 1830s or something like that. Uh, it's stunningly gorgeous. Uh, a lot of people go on this train because of how beautifully it was built and how well it's been preserved. It's got really nice wood paneling and a lot of uh, old brass uh, handles and things like that inside. My wife actually dressed up really cute. When it's not just me saying that, the staff said uh, how nice she looked. Uh, but it turns out actually a lot of people go on this train and they dress up old-timey so they could do photo shoots here. A funny story uh, while we're here is that I have a dirty little secret when it comes to Switzerland. Now, obviously, I'm a fan of food, as you can imagine, by having a show like this. But Switzerland is really expensive. And since by the time I end up in Switzerland during my travels, I'm pretty broke, there's one place I always end up eating while I'm here. Good old McDonald's. The last time I was in Switzerland, I was at McDonald's or or just brought food back to my hostel to cook. I literally did not go to any restaurant just because it was way too expensive. This time around, we actually weren't spending all that much time in Switzerland just for the train, basically, and to get us from France to Italy. So we've been basically eating convenience store sandwiches and then going to McDonald's. But that being said, McDonald's is not that cheap here. I mean, it's cheaper than the other options, but... If you get like a combo meal, it's still going to run you around $22, $23. Also, no offense to any Swiss people out there, but there are definitely a lot of really nice places to get a meal. But, I mean, there really isn't anything that's super specific to Switzerland that you just have to eat while you're here. Uh, maybe with the exception of uh, fondue or raclette. But other than that, Switzerland, although they do have very good food available aren't really known for their native cuisine. Well, now that I've lost all my Swiss listeners, let's talk about a town right down the street from Montreux, Vivay. Again, this might seem like just another ski resort town, but if you take a look real close, you'll notice there's actually a very important company headquartered here. 
Nestle. For those who grew up in the U.S. or maybe even other parts of the world as well, maybe you can back me up on this, but for me as a kid, Nestle was synonymous with chocolate. In fact, if you ask me what Nestle did until maybe about 10, 15 years ago, I would say they were a chocolate company, full stop. Little did I know that they're actually the largest food company in the world, providing much more than just chocolate. This is true in the U.S., but especially true in other parts of the world, and especially third world nations. I would notice when I started coming down to South America that not only was there a lot of Nestle-branded products, but a lot of non-Nestle-branded products that were still owned by Nestle in the form of some sort of subsidiary. The idea of being heavily visible in third world countries is going to be important to our story today. Before we go any further, I just want to say something. There are a few things in life that I truly love. But on that list is going to have to be my wife, pistachios, and a good conspiracy theory. I love conspiracy theories, even when there's nothing to them. Of course, a lot of conspiracy theories do come out to be factual. But it usually takes going down a long road to get to that point. To set up our story, we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to the heart of a lot of people. Breasts. You see what I did there? And yes, before you ask, I am very proud of myself. Specifically, we're going to be talking about women's breasts as compared to men's breasts, also known as man boobs. But all joking aside, obviously women have breast tissue to eventually produce milk to feed the children. It's the way things naturally work, but of course there might be reasons why a woman chooses not to breastfeed. It could be because of discomfort, uh, not having the time to do it, or some other issues, such as if the mother has a communicable disease that she can pass on to her baby through milk and obviously wants to avoid that. Thankfully, there are options available for women in that situation, and one that's quite frequently used is infant formula. Even though milk is considered superior in most ways compared to infant formula, infant formula definitely has its place. So for those who aren't aware, uh, infant formula is just basically a powder that intends to simulate the nutrients that you would get from mother's milk as closely as possible that you mix with water and put into a bottle. Believe it or not, infant formula is not all that recent of an invention. For example, we have records of the Wabanaki and other Native American nations who made infant formula from nuts and cornmeal. But the type of infant formula that we're talking about here in the story wouldn't have been available until the invention of the rubber nipple in 1845. Once that was invented, then people started to make bottles for babies that would be able to hold milk, which over time would include other nutrients. Some of the first forms of formula that we would be somewhat familiar with really started at the beginning of the 20th century. These involved using cow's milk with a mix of water, cream, and some sort of sweetener. But it was becoming obvious that many children who were given this formula weren't as healthy as those that were breastfed. So doctors started to recommend adding other ingredients like orange juice or cod liver oil, which seemed to help out a bit. But one of the biggest issues with this method was that children tended to get more bacterial infections and get sick. In the 1920s and 1930s, people started to use evaporated milk because not only was it cheaper, but it also seemed less prone to bacterial infections. 
It wasn't until the 1960s that infant formula in the form that we know today really became marketed. This being an all-in-one product that you would just mix with water and put into a baby bottle. Of course, these were very much considered first world nation products and were marketed to women that were now going into the marketplace. Marketing played a huge role in the move of Americans and Europeans switching from breastfeeding to formula, and by the early 1970s, over 75% of American babies were fed formula along with or in place of breast milk. In the developing world, this was a completely different story. Most women still chose to breastfeed. And formula wasn't really an option unless there was some kind of medical issue. But the free market wasn't going to just sit back while an entire new customer base was ignorant of their latest products. And that's where Nestle steps in. Since Nestle already had quite a few products in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Asia, they decided they were going to bring a new product to these countries. But wanting to sell something and actually selling something are two different things. The magazine New Internationalist, which was one of the organizations that did quite a bit of digging into this topic, said that Nestle had a three-part strategy. To create a need where none existed, to convince consumers that the products are indispensable for the good life, and to link products with the most desirable and unattainable concepts. And then give a sample. Free. The way they started to market in these developing nations was to entice people by using vanity, snob appeal, racism, and FOMO, or fear of missing out. And then, ultimately, just outright fear. For example, they would say things like, well, if you have a child and you're breastfeeding, well, your breasts are going to get saggy. And who wants saggy breasts? Then they would go on to say things like, Do you seriously just want to stay at home all day and breastfeed like some kind of animal? No, you need to go and work. And if you have formula, then you can feed your baby without having to be there all day to feed them. Another thing they talked about was how white women don't breastfeed. They use formula like any civilized person would. Don't you want to be like them? And if that didn't work... Then they would say things like infant formula is better than breastfeeding, and if you don't breastfeed, well, you're basically condemning your children to die. When we look at the past, we see things that we can forgive based on ignorance. For example, people didn't know smoking would lead to cancer at first, and that's why four out of five doctors recommended Chesterton brand cigarettes. But that wasn't the case when it came to infant formula. Paige Harrigan, senior nutrition advisor with Save the Children, said, quote, at the time, the benefits of breastfeeding were being brought to light, unquote. In fact, one study at the time showed that six months of exclusive breastfeeding increased a child's chance of survival by 600% compared to infant formula. But of course, women in these countries were not given the same information that women in developed countries were getting. Now, I want to be very clear here. I'm not saying that there's any problem if you decide to breastfeed your children or not. As long as it's your decision, and that decision is based on correct information. The problem is, when you're being preached to by a corporation to do something and have no other opposing viewpoint. In addition, women in these countries were just getting a taste of freedom for the first time. The British NGO The War and Want wrote, quote, As the social position of women changes and they go out to earn a wage, 
looking at the breast as a cosmetic sex symbol rather than a source of nourishment reinforces the trend, unquote. So we say this information was marketed to mothers and families in developing nations, but where was it marketed? On television or on billboards? Yeah, well, it gets a lot worse than that. You see, Nestle would hire saleswomen to dress up as nurses in nurse uniforms to either go to hospitals where women were giving birth or to stop by the homes of new mothers unannounced. Again, according to the Warren Want, quote, the nurse began by saying breastfeeding was best, then went on to detail the supplementary foods that the breastfeeding baby would need. The nurse was implying that it was possible to start with a proprietary baby milk from birth, which would avoid these unnecessary problems, unquote. Let me explain something, kind of add a bit of context here. One of the things that always bothered me when I was living in Latin America was how people tend to look at professionals like doctors and lawyers as if they were speaking from the very mouth of God himself. In the U.S., for example, it's not uncommon to be given a diagnosis by a doctor and then go seek a second or even a third opinion. For us, the doctor or other medical professional helps us make our own personal decisions, but at the end of the day, they're still our decisions. However, in other parts of the world, if a doctor tells you something, you do it without question. The same goes for nurses and other medical professionals. So imagine being someone in a developing nation, oftentimes very young, perhaps even a teenager, having your first child and having a medical professional tell you that you need to stop breastfeeding and start using this formula. I mean, at the very least, it was a very stressful situation for these women. And that was exactly the point. Okay, now this next part, I'm not really sure how true it is. Uh, I saw it quite a bit in my research. Uh, I never heard of this before, but apparently part of the concept of scaring these women and stressing them out was to make them afraid or sad, which could then lead to the milk of the breast drying up. This is known as the letdown reflex. If these nurses could somehow cause these women to not produce as much milk as they normally would, they might become afraid that they can't provide enough for their baby and then start to look for other alternatives. Something that became very common during this time was for these new mothers to be given free bottles and infant formula. All courtesy of our friends, the Nestle Company. This would happen by Nestle providing hospitals with millions of dollars in subsidies for office furniture, conferences, publications, research projects, and straight-out gifts. Even though the doctors and the administrators of these hospitals knew what was going on, they preferred to get that money than to tell these Nestle representatives to take a hike. Ever so conveniently, these courtesy packs for the mothers included enough formula to last at least a few months. Just enough time for their breasts to stop producing milk naturally. By the time the formula samples had run out, mom wasn't able to make any more milk even if she wanted to. So now she would be dependent on buying infant formula. In and of itself, this is a pretty scummy thing to do. Now you have people here that are being tricked into buying your product, and there's now no alternative except for just letting the baby die of starvation. But that's not the worst part. Now, in all fairness, I don't think that what happened afterwards was Nestle's intention, but it certainly was not surprising when it happened. 
You see, a lot of these women in third world nations didn't have the money to buy infant formula. So what did they do? One option was to dilute the formula using more water than is recommended to make it spread out and last longer. An article from the New York Times uh, said that some of these families that were interviewed for an article on this topic used three times the amount of water recommended so that they could feed their children the formula. Of course, the problem with that is that the baby is not only not getting enough nutrition, but the extra water is going to put great strain on their little developing kidneys. So here you would have this twofold problem of malnourished babies who could then go into kidney failure. In addition to that, not everyone has access to clean drinking water. Breast milk, unless the mother has some kind of infection or disease, is going to come out free of contaminants. But a lot of times you had people that were just mixing this powder with dirty river water, which caused all kinds of infections in these poor babies. So how bad did the problem actually get? Remember that NGO that we mentioned earlier named War and Want? The report that they published in 1974 that really put this issue on the map was called The Baby Killer. So that should probably give us an idea of how things were going. The problem got so bad that Dr. Stephen Joseph, an official with the United States Agency for International Development, estimated that this reliance on baby formula was directly or indirectly the cause of more than a million infant deaths every year from malnutrition and diarrheal diseases. In addition to that, babies that did survive were also much more likely to have developmental issues. Of course, Nestle wasn't going to take this lying down. In fact, they made it a point to sue War on Want. And they won. The sad thing about this was that Nestle brought this to court even though the evidence was laid out against them and they were never held legally responsible. But it wasn't all good news for Nestle because although the judge in this case didn't make them pay any fines, the caveat was that they did have to change their strategies in marketing to third world nations. Time magazine said that this was more of a moral victory than anything else. But that wasn't the end of Nestle's issue here. Once word got out what was going on, Nestle started getting some really bad publicity in the eyes of the public. In 1977, the Infant Formula Action Coalition in Minneapolis started a boycott against Nestle products. Soon after, boycotts started in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and parts of Europe. This was really starting to have an effect, and even governments are starting to step in at this point, with the U.S. Senate holding a public hearing on the promotion of breast milk substitutes in developing countries. After this investigation, they came up with a marketing code as a recommendation for Nestle. In 1981, the World Health Assembly, which is uh, part of the WHO, came up with an official international code of marketing breast milk substitutes. It basically said that you can promote your infant formula as an infant formula itself and not as an improvement on breast milk. In 1984, Nestle agreed to meet with the boycotters and created an independent agency called the Nestle Infant Formula Audit Commission. Things were looking good, everyone was happy, and the boycott ended. And as soon as it ended, Nestle decided to go back to their old ways. So in 1988, another international boycott was started against Nestle. By this time, people weren't just boycotting the formula, but they were boycotting all kinds of Nestle products, 
anything to get the point to this greedy corporation. By 1999, Nestle was finally being held responsible by the governments of the world. The United Kingdom's Advertising Standards Authority were questioning the advertising methods Nestle was using, and in 2000, European Parliament invited UNICEF, Nestle, and other organizations to present evidence of unethical and irresponsible advertising tactics. And this specific hearing was based on reports coming out of Pakistan. Surprisingly, Nestle didn't come, stating that they had scheduling conflicts, but sent a representative from their auditing company. Even though you would think by this point Nestle would clean up its act, organizations like Save the Children, Oxfam, Care International, Plan International, and World Vision have continued promoting boycotts against Nestle and constantly sending them open letters. Nestle, for their part, states that they, quote, follow the WHO code as implemented by national governments everywhere in the world, unquote. That being said, countries around the world continue to accuse Nestle of unethical practices. So, what does this have to do with history? Well, I think it's safe to say that if Nestle's actions have taken millions of babies out of the population over the years and have caused issues with the development of millions of others, who knows what the world would be like if that never happened? The sad thing about these sorts of stories is that it just reinforces the idea that some people and some companies in the developed world look at others as being less than human. This is all about making money, and had they just left these poor people alone, they would have been perfectly fine. Women were breastfeeding for time immemorial before Nestle showed up at their doors. For all we know, the person who could have cured cancer or given us flying cars by now wasn't able to do it because their mother was tricked, and they died as a result. On a positive note, though, there's a lot more education available to help mothers make better decisions. Also, a lot of governments have stepped in and made laws against these actions. For example, I remember going to a clinic in Ecuador and seeing a a big poster on the wall stating that if you see women dressed up as nurses and offer you infant formula, to immediately report them, since what they're doing is illegal. They also had large amounts of information available as to the benefits of breastfeeding compared to using infant formula. The law is very specific that if you sell infant formula or work for a company that does, that you have to wear clothing that very clearly marks what company you represent and you're not allowed to use street clothes, let alone medical clothing. As we wrap up our time here on the shores of Lake Geneva, I can't help but wonder how much of the development and beauty of this area is due to complete disregard for human life and other parts of the world. With that said, I have to get out of here before Nestle sends their goons to take me out. Next week on Delicious History On Vacation, we'll be joining you from beautiful Milan, Italy. Until then, remember that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. Delicious.